I invite you to open with me this morning in God's Word to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 and verse 23. Acts 18, 23. And we're going to study together this morning through the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 19. Uh, As you're turning there, I just want to share with you just an encouragement that I have experienced this morning. Um, I have had three separate conversations with uh, folks in this church who inquire with me about, hey, how do, I, how do I download the Bible app on my phone so that I can follow along with the sermon? And uh, I love that because here's what that communicates. It communicates that uh, we truly believe the Word of God is the foundation of everything that happens here, that there's a concern, uh, that, that even before this time comes, they are asking the question, hey, how do I find that? And then even one person, their conversation was, hey, how do I, is there a plan that I can follow to read through Scripture? And that is so wonderful. That's not a program that we've put out before the church. That is, that is believers, followers of Christ, recognizing the necessity of the Word, that their lives should be built on the foundation of the Word. And uh, I just wanted you to know that encourages me. As we come to Acts 18 and verse 23, I want to talk with you this morning about uh, the church being strengthened in Ephesus, the church being strengthened in Ephesus. You see, at various stops along the way, we've seen how God has worked through Paul and those serving with him to do a particular and unique work in various places. Uh, We looked last week how when Paul was in Corinth that he had to be steadfast and he had to kind of hold his ground and remain faithful and he was more faithful in Corinth as far as the length of time he was there than any place along the way. And what we see happen here in Ephesus is that pattern continues in his life and he stays longer in Corinth, or Ephesus rather, than he did even in Corinth. So he's learning some steadfastness along the way and we're gonna see this morning the reason for that. Let me share some statistics for you with you this morning though and I rarely do this because I know statistics sometimes aren't reliable and just as quickly as you say it, it's probably dated. But these statistics paint a picture for why this passage is relevant for us. Listen carefully to this. Mark Clifton, who is um, a church revitalization consultant with uh, the North American Mission Board, which our church supports, he, he states these few things about the state of Southern Baptist churches. He says, Southern Baptists lose more than 900 churches every year. That's staggering, right? Southern Baptists, now that's not including all of the other mainline denominations of the Protestant church today, but he says Southern Baptists lose more than 900 churches every year. He also says this, seven out of 10 churches are either plateaued or declining. So 70% of Southern Baptist churches are plateaued or declining. That probably doesn't catch us off guard. We see empty parking lots as we drive through Cave Spring, right, on Sunday morning. And you see pews this morning that, that were filled with people not long ago, and they're not here this morning. So you see this reality. He also says this, though, according to Lifeway Research Statistics, only about 15% of Southern Baptist churches are healthy, growing, and multiplying churches. All of these say the very same thing, and it's very simply this. Churches are dying. Churches are dying. And that's not just a reality that is outside of 
the Bible Belt, the southeastern part of the United States, that's a reality that's true all across our country. Churches are dying. Now, some have endeavored to plant more churches in response to that and say, well, yeah, these churches are dying, but if we can establish more churches along the way, then our net loss won't be the same. We can, as churches die, we can plant a new one and we can go into a new place and we can establish more churches. And, and some have said that's the answer. And, and I would say that's a good thing. We should be planting churches. However, I believe Scripture speaks very clearly to the need to see churches strengthened, the need to see churches revitalized, the need for churches to, as we read at the beginning of the service, for churches to be revived. Paul demonstrates that for us this morning at the beginning of his third missionary journey. You see, when we start in Acts 18 and verse 23, he begins that third journey, and he doesn't go into any new places. It's not a pioneer work. He doesn't go somewhere and, and have some sort of evangelistic crusade and rally. No, he, he goes back to the churches that were already established. He sees a need for them to be strengthened, and he, has, he gives us a pattern as the church today for us to follow as we seek the Lord to strengthen even this church. If you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to, to write this down. The mission moves forward as churches are strengthened. The mission moves forward as churches are strengthened. It's good that we raise up missionaries. That's good. And the mission does move forward when missionaries are trained and sent out. The mission moves forward when we collect offerings and send those missionaries. That's good. But it's all ultimately built around what God is doing in the church. And churches must be strong churches in order for the mission to move forward. And we see that very clearly in the passage before us. I invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And I'm only going to read verse 23. It's kind of a summary statement of everything we're going to look at this morning. After spending some time there, he set out, or Paul set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, listen carefully, strengthening all the disciples. Strengthening all the disciples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for how your word does provide strength, that it does encourage the church to move forward, that you give us even a pattern here in Scripture of how churches become stronger. So God, I pray that this morning you would use this word for that very work before us, that you would draw people to yourself who are far from you, that you would breathe life into your church, and God, that the mission would move forward. God, we trust this work to you. We ask you to bless the proclamation of your word by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Believe this passage all the way down through verse 10 in chapter 19 defines for us three ways that the church can be strengthened. The first way is this. When we work together, the church is strengthened. Cooperation strengthens the church. Just like everything else in the church, strengthening the church is not a solo endeavor. The, the end of chapter 18 show, shows us how the church works together to revitalize the church that is at Ephesus. Consider the verse I just read, verse 23. But I want you to look closer. 
I want you to see that at the end of that verse, it's defined that Paul endeavors to strengthen the disciples. Again, it's not some pioneer work. He's not holding an evangelistic crusade. He's not calling out for more missionaries to go out. No, he is clearly burdened about the state of the churches that he has already been to. You see, Paul's third missionary journey begins, and we learn this from his effort. Church leaders should be burdened about the church's condition. Those statistics I read to you at the very beginning, those should burden all of us, but it should especially burden church leaders. The reason it should burden them is because they should see the reality of the church before them. Now, some of you this morning might leave here and you're going to forget that. You're going to say, hey, you know, that's not for me to worry about. And and listen, you may say that I'm not going to take ownership of that reality. But I want you to know that those are the very things I lose sleep about. Those are the things that burden me and bother me. And as God has called you to lead in the church, if he has planted that burden within you, this should keep you up at night. The reality that churches around us are dying. It is a troubling notion. It troubled Paul, even in his day. You see, he he sets out on this journey, it says in verse 23. Now, that's kind of a misunderstanding or a mis. uh, application of what he's doing here. It's, it's a journey in a sense that he's going to these various places, but it's different than his journeys before. In his previous two journeys, he went to certain places. He stayed for a little while, perhaps a couple months, and then he would go to the next place. And, and even in the second journey, we saw that his longest stay was in Corinth, and that was at the end of the journey. But here in the third journey, he goes through these various places quickly. I mean, it's just one sentence. It says he went to all of these churches in these various regions, and then he arrives at Ephesus, and that's where he camps out. This was, we need to understand, a 1,500-mile journey. He was intentional because he was, in bur- he was burdened. We learn in chapter 19 and verse 10 that he stayed in Ephesus for at least two years. So more than a journey, it was really a residence taken up in Ephesus. But I want you to notice the focus of the journey. Again, it was to strengthen the disciples. That word strengthen means to establish the disciples, to give them roots, to give them a foundation. He recognized there was an issue in Ephesus. He recognized there were issues in the churches that he had already been to. And so he went there to strengthen them. Churches that are strengthened have visionary leaders or a leader, and they are burdened about the church's condition. We must admit that there's a problem, right, before we can address it. But notice this as we get to verse 24. We see there that teachers should use their gifts to disciple others. Again, it's not a solo endeavor. It's not up to just a visionary leader or shepherd to strengthen and revitalize the church. No, there are teachers that are uniquely gifted, and we see that in verses 24 and 25. Look at that with me. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the Scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, He was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. These couple of verses, they point out some truths about Apollos that made him a uniquely gifted teacher. I want you to see what it says there. It says, first of all, he was from Alexandria. 
This meant that he was educated. Alexandria was kind of the intellectual capital of the Roman world at that time. So he had been to the schools in Alexandria. I mean, there are are great philosophers that you might even read about today that also uh, put their, their stake in the ground at Alexandria. And so he was an educated man. It says there also he was eloquent. He was a good speaker. He also, it says, he knew how to handle the word of God. In other words, he knew how to teach the scriptures. He had also been discipled. It said that he had been shown or taught the way of the Lord. So discipleship had happened in Apollos' life. And then it says that he was fervent in the spirit. What this means is he was passionate. He was passionate. It was clear that he cared about teaching the word of God rightly, and people knew that about him. You see, he took all of these gifts and he used them to strengthen the church in Ephesus. He recognized all of these gifts that God had no doubt given him. And he said, I'm going to use these gifts to strengthen the church. Listen, when God has given you a gift in the church, it might not be to teach. But if he's given you a gift, you should use it for the glory of God and the flourishing of the church. Listen carefully to what Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 4 Verses 10 and 11, Peter says it this way, just as each one has received a gift, he said, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus in everything. So just in that verse, it summarizes gifts. Gifts to serve, gifts to teach, gifts to lead, gifts to follow. All of those things work together for the flourishing of the church. In January, we're going to begin a study together. It's more of a topical series of sermons, and we're going to study what it means to have spiritual gifts. We're going to take some spiritual gift inventories, and you say, well, listen, we've done that before, and we've checked that box, and and nine pastors ago, they were doing that. Listen, this is going to be a little bit different and a little bit unique. And so I want to encourage you to take that seriously because we're going to dive into that topic again. We're going to begin to understand, hopefully, how you have been uniquely gifted. As we move to verse 26, we learn, however, about a problem with Apollos. Yes, he was gifted. Yes, he was teaching. But we also saw there at the end of verse 25, it says that he only knew uh, the baptism of John. And so that's an issue. So here's what we see. Criticism must be graciously given and humbly received. I want you to understand what's happening here in verses 26 and 27. Look at it with me. It says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. This is, of course, what he had been doing already, but now he's going into the synagogue among religious leaders, those who were educated in the Scriptures. And it says there, After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, they explained the way of God to him more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila show up again. You might remember these characters. We looked at them last week. We were introduced to these friends of Paul. And he stayed, it says, in Corinth there with Priscilla and Aquila in their home. And and he shared in their trade of tent making. We learned all about that. But then I also told you they would show up again and again and again as these comrades in ministry. And that's what's happening here through them. But I want you to see how criticism was graciously given by Priscilla and Aquila. It said there they identified an issue with his teaching, an issue with his understanding. 
And they didn't publicly humiliate him. Notice this. It says there they took him to the side and they began to explain this to him. I love this because Priscilla and Aquila, they were definitely people who had the gift of hospitality. We see again and again throughout the book of Acts where they invited people into their home. And I believe that's why we see another translation of this passage where it says they invited him to their house. So couldn't you see this? They're sitting there and they're in this crowded room of religious leaders and, and their Apollos is, man, he's waxing eloquent and he is just preaching the house down. And as he's teaching and preaching, I believe that they're sitting there, this couple, they're sitting there on about the third or fourth row, and they say, man, that something don't sound quite right. Yes, he's doing good, but something don't sound quite right. And so they wait till afterwards, and you know, like we do here, you know, you walk out the door and you shake hands with the preacher. They might have done that then too, I don't know. They're walking out the door and they're shaking hands with him, and they say, hey, young man, we want to invite you to lunch at our house. Can you come and hang out with us for a little while? Apollos goes over there and he sits down and he said, listen, we, we heard something just a little bit off with what you said. Would you let us explain that to you? See, criticism was graciously given. I have no doubt. Now, some of that is, is just uh, we're painting a picture that doesn't necessarily get explained fully in Scripture here, but I believe it might have been something like that. I think about it this way if you want to illustrate it. Parenting should be gracious criticism, Right? As a parent, you're taught, or you should be taught, rather, that you should never humiliate your kids. Now, sometimes humiliation can be used for their edification, but I don't think that's necessarily the best way to go about it. And the best way to go about it might be to go to them and say, listen, what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing, and we're going to talk about this when you get home. That's what my mom and dad did. They said, hey, we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to tell you something. Wait until we got home was punishment enough, right? And that's what's happening here, that gracious criticism being given. In church life, as we live in relationship with one another, there will be times when correction will need to be given. That's the nature of a family relationship in the body of Christ. Understand, to be encouraged by this, Jesus even assumed these occasions would happen. That's why he tells us in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 15 through 20, how you should confront a brother or sister. But when these occasions arise, there is clearly an appropriate way to handle such error in the church. We also should learn from Apollos here, very quickly. Notice that Apollos, he, he received the criticism. How do we know that? Well, we can read between the lines a little bit here, and we can see that he actually went with them to their house. He, he bothered to, to go with them, and, and then we notice this change happen as we get to verses 27 and 28. I want you to look at those verses with me. It says, when he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and the sisters, they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Listen, the church supports the advancement of the mission. You see, there was a change that, that happened within his life. There was clearly this, this criticism that happened, but also he received this criticism, and, and things began to shift in his ministry and because of that, the church as a whole, the brothers and the sisters, it says, they put a stamp on his ministry. They said, we believe in what he's doing and we trust him to do this work elsewhere. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul would say this about Apollos. You probably know this already. Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase you see, Apollos was going to go to Corinth, and guess what? Paul writes to the Corinthians later on, and he says, listen, I know about the work that he did, 
because the church sent him there. And he watered the work, the seeds that had already been planted. I talked to you a moment ago about the, the gifts we had received so I can take those with me to Nepal. You say, well, why is that important? The reason it's important is because as I arrive, what that communicates to those missionaries is that we are in this together. We're, this isn't just me going by myself. There's a church that has already supported this work in a very unique way. I talked to Madison just a couple weeks ago when we were putting this list together. He said, are you sure this isn't too much? I mean, you're asking me for this list and I'm giving it to you, but are you sure they're willing to do this? I said, yes, they're willing to do it because guess what? We're in this together. And although I'm the one going, you are with me in that. And so understand we're in this together. And as the church puts the stamp of approval on the mission, the mission moves forward. The bottom line we see in chapter 18 is church strengthening only happens when we work together. We use our gifts together. We help shape one another with gracious instruction. And we support this work with our words collectively. But make note of this as we move to chapter 19. When we are genuine, the church is strengthened. In chapter 19 and verses 1 through 7, Paul has a conversation with some disciples of John. Let me read this episode to you down through verse 4. It says, While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, into what were you baptized, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. And, and Paul said this, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. He encounters an issue with the disciples of John regarding the genuineness of their faith. Now, there's a lot of disagreement around this passage. I mean, you're going to find 19 different opinions if you read biblical scholars on this passage. And, and, and some of them are in one camp, and they say they were already believers when John arrived, but they were a little bit misguided. And then the other half, they say, well, they weren't believers at all, and, and, and they didn't have a right understanding, so they weren't believers. I would say at the very least the very least, they did have an inappropriate understanding. And I am of the persuasion, based upon what we see here, and I could explain this in a lengthier debate or conversation, that they were not believers at all when John, or when Paul arrived, rather. See, the question was regarding the genuineness of their faith. Now, before we walk through the specific issues concerning genuineness, I want to make sure we understand the seriousness of what is at stake. Why is this relevant to us as the church today? Listen, a church can have strong leadership, gifted teachers, an engaging worship service, a jam-up children's ministry, and even an effective outreach ministry. But if the church is not made up of genuine, regenerate believers, the church will not be strengthened or revitalized. Churches oftentimes spin their wheels trying to see the church grow stronger without ever addressing this issue. Unless the church is made up of genuine believers, the church will never grow stronger. So here's my caution as we move through this. Don't 
dismiss this instruction that we're going to look at. Listen carefully. Consider your own testimony in light of the scriptures. Because the scriptures are going to show us here what it looks like to be a genuine believer. Three things we should see about genuine believers. First is this. Genuine believers understand the gospel. What Paul encountered with the disciples of John wouldn't have been strange at that time. We see that John had traveled throughout the known world at the time, and he was teaching this baptism of repentance. He was a great preacher, and he traveled a whole lot. We don't know exactly how they heard about him, but we do know that they adopted his teachings. And what we also know is they did not fully understand the implications of Jesus coming. Here's why we know that. They said they didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. In other words, they didn't know about Christ's promise of the Holy Spirit coming. We also know that when Paul began to instruct them, he went straight to the teachings of Jesus. He says, you need to know about the baptism that is in Jesus. And so they didn't fully understand the gospel. Here's why this is relevant to us. Genuine believers live with a distinct hopefulness because Jesus has come. They understand how the gospel has impacted their lives. However, my fear is that many who claim to be Christians today, they live with a fear that is in no way unique from the world around them. They fear the same things the world fears. They don't have the hope that is unique to them or should be unique to them because they know Jesus. No doubt, in our tense social, political, and financial environment, there are things at times we should be afraid of. But living in such fear is not a mark of a genuine believer. If fear consumes you all the days of your life, consider the implications of the gospel in your life. You should have hope. You should have peace because Jesus has come. Secondly, genuine believers have repented of sin. We see there that they knew about this baptism of repentance. And so I believe they got this part right. This is what John was teaching. We see this in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came, it says, preaching in the wilderness, saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Listen, genuine believers recognize their need for Jesus. This pushes back against every social norm today. Listen, our social norm today is this, that we can somehow stand on our own, that we are self-sufficient, that we don't need anyone else around us. But the gospel declares to us that we must repent of our sin, that our sin is what makes us broken, that our sin is what exposes our need for Jesus. They understood this, the disciples of John, and so Paul didn't spend a lot of time here, but I think we should, and here's why. There should be a uniquely distinct Christian life within each and every one of us. There should be a unique conduct. There should be a unique manner of speaking. There should be a unique manner of thinking. We should look at the world differently. We call that a Christian worldview. Repentance is absolutely necessary in the life of a genuine believer. But now look at verses five through seven. It says there, when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy. 
Now, there were about 12 men in all. Now, I'm going to explain this more carefully, but probably not as carefully as I should. But make note of this at least. Genuine believers are filled with the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit. Now, in this particular instance, it says that they spoke in tongues, and that was the evidence of them being filled with the Spirit. And we as Baptists, we kind of get tripped up on that. We have a hard time with that. And so I want to walk carefully through what the Bible teaches as a whole about speaking in tongues. First, notice this. This is the last mention of speaking in tongues occurring in the book of Acts. You'll notice that we are only at chapter 19. There's a lot more ground to cover, and at no other point is speaking in tongues even referenced in the book of Acts. So this is it. So I would say this. If this is such a significant occurrence in the life of every believer, you would think that it would come up at every single occasion when a new believer was ushered into the family of God. We also see very few occasions in the book of Acts where it's referenced. Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost, a very unique historical event where the Spirit came. Acts chapter 10 and verse 19, again, unique works were happening and God put his stamp on those works through the speaking in tongues. Listen, we cannot normalize these isolated occurrences in Scripture and say that it is a mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Because nowhere in Scripture is that taught. Now, I will just come right out and say this because I feel like some of you have family that are of these other denominations. Pentecostals often teach that. Folks in the church of God often teach that. But the Scriptures do not teach that. There are occasions where God says, I'm going to bless this work uniquely, and this is how I'm going to show my blessing. But it doesn't happen at every occasion. There's a reason why it's not mentioned anywhere beyond Acts chapter 19. However, and I'm going to move on from this now, however, the filling of the Spirit should be unique in every believer's life. It should be a mark of who they are. Here's why we know that. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24 John writes to us, the one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is that the spirit he has given to us. So in other words, there is a spirit that lives within us. The Holy Spirit has dwelt within us and it does affect our lives in profound ways. Listen, genuine believers are distinctly different in their conduct. They live different lives. The scriptures teach again and again how we should look at our lives, our conduct, and that is sometimes the mark of who we are as Christians. So we should be critical of ourselves first and measure that against what the Word of God says we should be. That's what's happening here. Yes, in this occasion, this is the mark, the speaking of tongues in this particular instance. However, we also are indwelt with the very same Spirit, and it affects our conduct. Church strengthening is only possible when the church is made up of genuine believers. But finally, write this down. When we are patient, the church is strengthened. Verses 8 and 10 through 10 paint a picture of Paul's patience in Ephesus. I told you already that in verse 10 we learned that, that Paul, he stayed uh, for two years there teaching. But I want to read it to you. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, 
taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Two things should be obvious about us if we are patiently pursuing the work of church strengthening. First, it's this. We can't allow conflict to derail the mission of God in the church. Notice here the marks of conflict in verses 8 and 9. It says they were publicly slandering Paul's words. It says they were humiliating him. Listen, this was clearly an emotional response to what Paul was teaching. But listen, Paul didn't see conflict as an occasion to quit. In fact, he saw it as a reason to persist. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 8 and 9. I want you to see this. This reference in Corinthians is so relevant to what we see happening here in Acts. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verses 8 and 9. Paul speaks here directly about the work that's going on in Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. Read that again. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Again, this is a two-year endeavor. And he says this, because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. What he says here is this. He says, listen, opposition is a reason to stay for Paul. He says, there is a great work to be done. And just because there is opposition, it doesn't mean I'm going to leave. Paul sticks around. He continues to maintain the course. Why? Because conflict does not derail the mission. But finally, if we are going to see churches strengthened, if we're going to see churches revitalized, if we're going to see this church strengthened, listen, our idea of success has to change. Our idea of success has to change. If I can be very confessional with you for just a moment, it would be for me to share this with you. It is in this area of my personal walk with the Lord in ministry that I have changed the most over the last two and a half years. Some of you know that. Some of you understand that because we walked through these two and a half years together having this conversation about my understanding of success having to change. You see, you're taught in seminary success should look like something in the church, that, that pews should be full, that budgets should grow, that the baptism pool should be full. In fact, I stood in this pulpit about two years ago, and I said to you, a mark of God's blessing on the church is that pool behind us being full as often as possible. I do believe that when churches are healthy, those things do happen. That is biblically supported. However, as I began to understand more fully what Scripture teaches, I began to see sometimes success looks different. And so as your pastor, I want to share with you my perspective has shifted, and I think our perspective collectively should shift as well. Notice what happens in Ephesus. Look at how verse 10 ends. I want you to see this. It says, he went on for two years so that all the residents, both Jews and Greeks, they heard the word of the Lord. Doesn't say they all believed the word of the Lord. 
It doesn't say there was this mass evangelistic crusade and they baptized people for days. It doesn't say that the church in Ephesus grew radically overnight. It says everyone heard the word of the Lord. And I believe all of us, when we see Paul's ministry in Ephesus, we would see his steadfastness and we would say it was successful. And over the next few weeks together, as we look closer at his work there, we're going to see those marks of success. Here's where I encourage you as the church. Churches around us are dying. Churches in general are dying. Some can blame that on some cultural reality or a social norm. But nonetheless, it should bother all of us that churches are dying. It should bother us when the church is not growing, but it also should not derail us. It didn't derail Paul. It didn't derail those young believers in Ephesus. There was clearly a pattern to their lives that strengthened the church. My encouragement to us as the church is this. Let that same pattern be true of us. Let us be genuine. That was a mark of a strengthened church. Examine our hearts. Even now during the invitation song, I want you to examine your heart. Consider this truth. Are you a genuine follower of Christ? And if not, let's have a conversation. Are you working together to see the church strengthened? That is a mark of a church that is being revitalized and growing stronger. Are we working together? And finally, are we seeing that our idea of success might have to change? Are we seeing that we have to be patient and steadfast in this work and it might take a little longer than we might have hoped? If you, are, if you are putting your stake in the ground on those things, I invite you during this invitation song to pray for God to continue to bless his church.